I'm responsible for my life and what I want to do in this world. Whatever silly thing that I'm good at, I'm going to pursue it and not look back. I believe I could be super fast and I don't want to waste those gifts. That was kind of my moment of I'm going to do this running thing because in their beginning, it was really easy to be like, I quit running. Like, I don't need to run competitively. I don't need to do any of that. But when that happened to me, that event, it changed me in the sense that there's a lot of people that had different gifts and they don't use it. I wanted to make sure I use my gifts because I think if we all use our gifts, we could do something really special, not for ourselves, but for our family. If we're really good, we could do something for our community, wherever we live. Morning Shakeout listeners, I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and my guest this week is Craig Curley. Look, this is one of my favorite conversations that I have ever had for the podcast, and I am super excited to share it here with all of you. From about 2010 through 2016, Craig was one of the most up-and-coming distance runners in the U.S., clocking a 63-minute half marathon, 2.15 for the marathon, and some top 10 finishes at national championship races. He hasn't raced a lot in recent years, but two weekends ago, he finished third at the Bandera 100K, his first time competing at that distance. Craig, who is 32 years old, is one of the most humble, hardworking, and down-to-earth people that I've ever spoken to, and it really comes out in this episode. We caught up a few days before Bandera and hit on a lot of different topics, from the connection that Craig feels to the trails and mountains, to his life growing up on a Navajo reservation in Arizona, and how he balances living in the modern world without getting too far away from his Native American roots. We also discussed his relationship to running and how it's evolved over the years, not wasting his gifts and talents, serving as a role model for other Native Americans, and a lot more. A big thank you to Tracksmith for their continued support of the podcast into 2021. To start the new year, Tracksmith continues their tradition of encouraging no days off, not as a race towards injury, but as an appeal for moderation. Leave a little in the tank every day so you can come back strong tomorrow. Their new No Days Off collection is cold weather gear designed to make that commitment a bit easier with warm layers, windproof tights, and accessories to get you out the door. I'm personally a huge fan of the lined Reggie half tights. Yes, half tights with a liner and a reflective sash on the side if you need to be seen in the dark. The built-in liner is a game changer. Once you go lined, you will never go back. There's no need to wear anything else underneath, and it won't bunch or chafe whether you're running fast, long, or somewhere in between. Tracksmith is offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more when you use the code MARIO15, that's MARIO15, when you check out at tracksmith.com. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder. What can I say about Gooder sunglasses? They are just the best. I've been wearing them for the past few years, and not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. 
And did I mention they are the most affordable performance shades on the planet, with most pairs coming in at just 25 to 35 bucks a piece. There's also a nice range of styles and colors. I'm a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. And yes, those are just a couple of the recklessly fun names that they have in their collection. So if you want to support the podcast and treat yourself to a pair of Gooders, head over to Gooder.com slash Mario or enter the code Mario at checkout to take advantage of a great deal. 13% off your first order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O and you'll get 13% off your first pair of shades. Look good, run Gooder. Okay, please enjoy my conversation with Craig Curley. All right, Craig Curley, I've been looking forward to this conversation since we first connected a few weeks back. You're someone whose career I followed from about 2010 to 2015. Your story has always intrigued me, and I couldn't be more honored to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Hello, Mario. Thanks for having me. Uh, Pleased to be talking to you. I know right now, as we're having this conversation in early January, you are in Tucson Arizona. What brings you there? Uh, what brings me to Tucson is uh, I went to college here and I know a lot of trails and I'm getting ready for a race this coming weekend in Texas. And uh, I usually fly out of Tucson to get to my races. What's the race this weekend that you're prepping for? Okay. So I'm getting ready for an ultra race. It's called the Mandera 100K. And uh, really excited about it. Uh, uh, haven't done anything like it, but it should be fun. I know you've done at least one ultra that I'm aware of in the past. It was a 50k back in like 2014 or so. Maybe is this the longest that you'll have ever raced? Yes, this is uh the longest I'll ever race. Um, I've done uh, a 50k in Mount Mount Taylor 50k is called. And that's in Grants, New Mexico. And what's the intrigue for you with the Bandera 100K? Uh, I just love getting out in the mountains. And uh, for me, uh, I was brought up uh, traditionally. I'm, I'm Navajo. We call ourselves Diné. And mountains are... Uh, really sacred, uh, a place of reverence and a place to heal and uh, acquire different things in terms of for health and for other people in the world that maybe need healing. And uh, I haven't really got a chance to run like trail races uh, in the past. I was always super focus on the roads uh just to stay safe and not get injured and uh this trail race is just something that uh i feel like is the right time and uh i don't know it's it's something that i always want to do when did it start calling to you 
uh, really started calling to me when I ran my first 50K, actually. Uh, my first 50K was, uh, as I was saying, was Mount Taylor 50K. And that's one of our sacred mountains. And the guy that pits on that race, the race director, his name is Ken Gordon. And uh, all the race entrants that he, uh, from like people entering the race, he uses it to uh, donate and help kids on the reservation, the Four Corners area. And at that time, when I was uh, uh, running on the roads, uh, it was he would donate to uh, the organization that I was part of called NNER. And I just really, uh, man, it was so, so much good memories from it. Let's hit pause right there. Cause I do want to go back to the Mount Taylor 50 K and talk about some of those memories. But for people listening to this, who don't know you are unaware of your story, you were, and I, and I, I say were with some hesitation because on some level, I feel like maybe you have a faster marathon in you, but you were a 215 marathoner not that long ago and were very competitive on the roads for a few years. And as you just explained, Trail and Ultra is something that is, is newer for you from a competitive standpoint. And you just talked a little bit about the appeal of, of Bandera and when you started to feel the the pull to it but i'm really you know i'm really interested in why bandera and why right now is there a competitive tilt to it oftentimes this is a race that qualifies people for western states uh it's been a national championship race in the past i know things are going to be a little strange this year with covid and all but how are you thinking about it from that standpoint um honestly I feel like running still very new to me. Uh, I think what made me good as a runner or when, when I was running fast, at least when I ran at 215, I, I had a good foundation. Uh, my upbringing has to do with that. Uh, I grew up raising churro sheep. So this, there's different types of breed of sheep. And this breed of sheep was brought over by the Spaniards and it was supposed to help when Navajos were placed onto reservations and they were given rations for meat and things like that. So like before that, Navajos were hunter-gatherers. So this was one way of uh, assimilating Navajos in the area to be part of America. And uh, so growing up, I, I didn't really look as running as like uh, a start or a finish. And I kind of kept that with me along the way. Uh, I just saw running as something that was healing and something I did for uh, ceremony reasons and things like that. And I just happened to meet very good people that gave me guidance and told me what was possible in terms of like getting into college and 
traveling different places because uh, people would invite me to the race. And uh, I always wanted to run the the trails because I felt like where I, where I am is where I grew up is the terrain is so, so different. There's rocky terrain, there's mountains. Uh, it's never just flat. And I remember growing up jumping over sagebush bushes and, uh, chasing wild horses, catching wild horses and things like that. And, uh, it turns out that I, I, had to learn how to run on the roads because the roads was so different. Like I could understand when people would twist their ankle on like a smooth trail. How I think, like, how is that possible? And then like a couple, like months ago, I came back out there not really running trails and I was twisting my ankles all the time. And I'm like, ouch, that hurts. And I realized that the variation of surface, uh, can help your running so much and just my lifestyle that I'm living right now. I, I just feel like that's a good, good place to re-enter the competitive scene again. What are your earliest memories of running? Uh, my earliest memories is like usually would be around my siblings and my, my dad, like my dad was a hard worker uh, he is a hard worker. It, he, I think a lot of it I get from him is that, uh, how much, uh, he pits himself into whatever he's doing. I remember the first time, uh, like there would be a little hill and my dad would be in, uh, Wranglers and cowboy boots and we would race to the top of a hill, like, it was just like, oh, last one up is uh, the slowest or something like that. He would say something like that. And all our siblings would try to beat each other to the top of the hill. And you got two different things. You could run around the bushes, which are like hip height or like a steeple barrier. Or you could just run through them or try to jump over them. And that's kind of what I did. And uh, that was my earliest memories of running. That's pretty incredible. And I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. What you just described, chasing your dad and your siblings up a hill, did that instill a competitive drive in you as well from a young age? Uh, to answer that, uh, frankly, I would say no. Uh, honestly, I've, I don't see myself as a competitive person. Uh, but a lot of people that talk to me would say I'm a competitive person because maybe I I don't like to lose races and things like that. Uh but I think the deep down truth is that I just want to give my ultimate best and uh if I, I don't I feel like I I failed in a way and that really bothers me and I, I don't wanna like I don't know, I don't like failing. I don't think uh like if I do though it's like I make a lot of mistakes and one thing with running is that with a lot of mistakes you can uh work on all the time and I'm kind of those I'm kind of the individual that needs a lot of chances to get things right. When did you first realize that? Uh 
not till I probably met my high school coach, uh, Terry Thompson. Uh, I think he taught me a lot about myself that I think the only person that kind of taught me a lot about myself was probably my, my older brothers. So the one thing that the coach taught me, Terry Thompson was that, uh, like, I remember I was just this shy young boy, uh, that really was comfortable being quiet and not being social, had to learn how to socialize. And he, he knew like I was gifted and running. And one of the things he told me was like, he sat me down and he said, Craig, it's okay to win. And like, when he said that to me, it was like, I was free and like, I won a race and I started winning more races. So just things, little things like that, that people really helped me and developing that I didn't know was there. Before he said that to you, did you have a hesitation around winning or were you fearful of it for some reason? Uh, I wasn't fearful, but uh, I feel like observant of people and how they treat each other. And I felt like I, I got a lot of uh, love growing up uh, just with my siblings and people just being nice to me. Uh, and I saw maybe other kids that were looking just for a little bit of it. So I didn't want to, I felt like I didn't want to be greedy with it and be like, oh, just because I'm going to win and you get all this tension that, uh, like I need it. Like I, I already knew deep down that I could win at a running event. And it was one of those things like, you know, I, I know it deep down and I proved it over time that I could win. So it was like, it wasn't really anything to win for me. It was like, you know, let, let them have it and let them feel some love because that those are, that those are great feelings. I mean, we all could even use encouragement. Sorry for like uh, staggering things. I'm just like really bad with like talking. No, no apology necessary at all. I want to give you the space to talk and tell your story. And I can tell from this end, even though we're not in the same room, giving you that space allows you to think about these things maybe for the first time in a while or in a way that you haven't before. And I, want to be respectful of giving you the space to figure it out. Cool. Before you started running in high school for coach Terry Thompson, did you ever think of or know that running was a competitive thing that people did against one another? Or were you only aware of how it fit into your upbringing as a member of the Navajo Nation? Uh, for me, competitive running was what what kids thought, or not what kids thought, what kids did, what children did. And I think a lot of time on the reservation, uh, you can be handed uh, adult responsibilities early on, like as early as 10. Like my dad he built a stone house with my his with my grandpa 
when he was like 10 years old. Uh, and that's like, for example, like where we're from, uh, we had these sandstone rock that are red. So if you could picture like Ireland or somewhere like that, that has these uh, limestone and they build a castle out of it. So it's kind of that kind of deal, but on the reservation. So growing up, uh, I always thought it was a kid's, kid's thing because uh, I didn't even see like an adult over like 18, like just running for fun or like, you know, put on like running shoes and split shorts and things like that. So I didn't even know that possibility. Uh, I knew that it was an Olympic sport, but that seemed like a dream world that happened like somewhere far, far away. Growing up, did you know that your world was so small? I went to a Catholic school called St. Michael's Indian School. And like reading about history and things like that, uh, just the world around us, like uh, I knew it was really big. And like I was always intrigued with like Germany and places like that. And, you know, I, I didn't really uh, see myself like, say, visiting there or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Growing up, it was really busy. Like my normal day growing up, like in the summertime, we would wake up uh, six in the morning or even earlier because the days are longer. So the sun rises earlier and we would feed all the animals. We had uh, growing up, I had, uh, I had my own bull. We had cattle, we had sheep, horses, lots of dogs, cats, and all those things had their needs. So that was time consuming. And also, uh, uh, like my family is really into, uh, like the traditional, like, especially my mom, my dad's kind of like the wild child. He was young and no parents, uh, around because they're usually working. So he was, very had to learn how to problem solve growing up with like say if something needed to get done and there was no tools he would figure out a way and that's one of the things that i've learned over the years and like for instance uh we would plant corn in the summertime and it would get like these days would be so hot like i don't know if you've ever been at high elevation but the sun seems to burn you mm-hmm. so there would be no clouds in the sky. And then one of my, we would take turns like driving a tractor to like plow out the ground. Then one of us would be pitting down corn and there would be these little mosquitoes biting at you. So you try to walk faster and pit down the seeds. Then also too, where you're walking, there would be these ant piles of rants that bite you, that uh, it stings really bad. So you would, Make sure you keep moving and making sure that you uh, put the corn in right because uh, corn is a really sacred thing in our tradition. We use it for a lot of things like our ceremonies, eating it, and also like uh, 
how we roast it so we could have it in the winter time because uh when my parents were younger they didn't have refrigerators or anything like that so everything had to be able to preserve without any of those uh modern day uh conveniences do you think that made you more mindful uh it made me mindful and also uh made me evil in a way and in terms of like when i saw that people that had a lot i i i would get this like feeling like i don't like them and that was the immature feeling i mean i grew out of that but that was one of the things that i really needed to change when i was younger but uh yeah i i didn't understand it for a while why i would hate like wealthy people but uh that was just kind of i saw like how how much people suffered and i felt like man they just take things for granted and uh i didn't really like that how did you grow out of that um uh, just being exposed to more people i mean when i went to college i was around people that didn't look like me i mean i was one or two places i was either in the library reading books or i was uh training like running because i when i was in high school i'm pretty sure i didn't run more than 30 miles so i was like i knew i was if i was going to do the sport uh my coach was saving me to have uh longevity mm -hmm. and uh man i i love him so much for that terry thompson just really oh man like i i hear some horror stories where like some people's initial uh introduction to running is more of a punishment and i'm glad i had people along the way that really were encouraging and man i i'm just thankful for that do you and coach thompson still have a relationship today Oh, uh, we do. I think he could be a world-class coach, but I think with the responsibility it takes living on the reservation, there's not much time to do that. So, like, he's one of the guys that, man, he changes so many people's lives in terms of, uh, he treats them like family. I mean, I know there's a lot of people that say you treat them like family, but one of the lessons he taught me well in high school was that uh he says he said this to our whole team he would we would have these teams meetings before we got practice started we all stand in a circle before we stretch and he would say look to your left look to your right look around this is your family if someone picks on them you stand up for them you take care of each other that was his teaching and at that time uh that that was important because uh uh bullying goes uh happens a lot in, in high school and things like that and we never had any problem with that because well we we had that uh support system with the, within each other that's really powerful especially at that age yeah, it's uh it's one of those things that I look back on and I was like 
I was so new to running in high school. Like he had the dream team. He had the gifted runners. And I was kind of like the last piece of the puzzle. And I don't want to brag, but like I was the fastest guy on the team. But like the the runners around me were always helpful. Like how far was like a 5K? Things like that are uh, like I remember in high school, like uh, I struggled with uh, math. And the, one of the guys on our team was a year younger, but he was in advanced math. And uh, he would help me. And I would like, when he would help me, like the next test would be like super easy. Uh, so like people were always really giving to me. And I think that that describes runners in general. When you're running, especially when you're racing at the time, were you thinking of those teammates and your success was as much their success as it was your own? And then later on in your career, when you did some great things on the road, would you think of the people who helped you along the way to get you where you were? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, when I go run, uh, I just can't help that to think about things. Like, uh, I'm not really analytical. So for the longest time, I would wear a watch, but I would never look at it. And people would wonder why I would have a watch. So I was like, I don't know. Sometimes people ask for a time. And at that time, we didn't have cell phones or anything like that. So, so like, when I would go for a run, it would be my time to try to think about solving problems or just kind of observe the world around me. Uh, a lot of things go on uh, in the world and I don't want to just be uh, drifting through. I want to experience things. So like when I'm running, I'm in the moment and I think about what I'm doing and it's always like forward thinking. At that time, I was thinking about how can I get faster and I I struggle a lot in high school with uh, just on a personal level. Uh, I kept a lot of things inside that I didn't vent out or I didn't let people see. And Coach Terry Thompson helped me out with that too. He would say like, whatever's going on in your life, he says, don't worry about it so much. He said, don't take it personally. Uh, don't be so sensitive because like I would hear what people would say to me and things like that. Like, for instance, like once I was known to be a good runner, people would be like, Oh, I can beat you and whatnot. And I'd be like, yeah, I wouldn't say anything, but I was like, yeah, you probably could. And like, I just felt like it was just, uh, a waste of time to kind of argue. And I felt like there's a, bunch of people in the world that are just looking for a fight and I was like man I don't want to be one of those people do you still have to remind yourself of a lot of these things now as an adult to just let them go so that you can focus on what it is you need to do uh 
you know, for the longest time, I kind of forgot all, I did forget all those things. When I was running fast, I had this tunnel vision and you become more machine-like because, uh, like for my instance, when I started running, I knew that people weren't just going to give me things. They weren't going to give it for free. And if I ever got injured, there's no second chances for me. Uh, so I took that very, like I, I kept that very deep in me and I reminded myself every day that I needed to stay healthy and uh, have people around me that are caring and can nurture me and my development, both uh, in running and outside of running. And those are the things that I try to remember most. We touched on this a little bit earlier in this conversation, but talk to me more about your connection to the land and how that manifests itself when you're out running. Uh, the land, the land uh, traditionally is a living thing. And in our stories, uh, which are only told in the winter time. And you can't find it in books. And if you find it in books, it's probably not a really sacred story. So Native Americans, they're very, uh, not Native, not all Native Americans, but the uh, Navajos in particular, uh, they're uh, oral tradition. So like nothing's written down. And there's a reason for it because like all those people studied the world, the cosmos and lived through life. And those things are that need to be protected because there are bad people out there or evil people out there. So those kind of knowledge is only exchange with someone that are good. So for us growing up, like when I take a look outside, I see trees, I see the sage, uh, I see wild tea, I see pine trees, and those different things we pray to, uh, as you would with say, like if you're a Catholic, you would use the crucifix and things like that. And I went to a Catholic school and I'm Catholic and some people would say like, not some people, but some Deneth would say like, how could you be Catholic uh, with what happened in the past? And for me, it's like when I went to St. Michael's, I went my second grade year and it was it was uh, one day, like after school, I was at a public school. My parents sat me down and says, do you want to go to a school where you pray? And I said, yes. And for me, my only uh, concept of prayer was like traditional view. So when I went to St. Michael's and it was Catholic view, uh, it was new to me, but also was taught by my mom to respect other people's beliefs. And the people that taught me there that were sisters and brothers. They were the teachers 
or sometimes the coaches. And they were very kind and they were, they allowed us to still practice our own traditions. So to me, it was just, I'm not, I'm like a blend of both in the sense that I respect both beliefs. And I'm pretty sure if I had a chance to learn other beliefs, I, I would be open to it because I believe in respecting everyone. How do you balance living in this modern world without getting too far away from your Navajo roots? Yeah, that's a challenge every day. Like, for instance, uh, when I went to college, uh, it's all about your studies and trying to further whatever you're trying to do at a time. It was running because uh, for me, growing up, uh, I was taught that you don't really ask for things like, and that was a, that got me, made things so challenging for me growing up because I would ask for things that I needed. Uh, and so I want to tell anyone that's listening, like when you need something, ask for it. Like, uh, it's hard to do, but uh, it, everyone needs help. And like when I learned that uh, you could ask for help, it made things so much easier and people, it was just a way of communication. Even if they couldn't help you, it was just, they got a better understanding of you. And getting back to how challenging it is to be Navajo and uh, live in modern times is that uh, I don't want to be just a descendant of Navajo. Uh, I want to keep the culture and part of that is learning the language and that's what I've been working on over these years and learning the stories and traditions because uh, I could never be Anglo-American. Uh, if you just look at me, I couldn't blend in even if I cut up my hair, bleach my hair, whatnot. I am Navajo and I want to keep my my tradition and because that's who I am. I can't be anybody else. I can't be like a horse or anything like that or a dog or anything. I only can be what I am, what I was born into this world. May I share a story real quick? Yes, please. Yeah. So, uh, so while I was in high school, um, uh, what made me have uh, the decision to really make running, like give it a real go, because I feel like I'm giving it a go now. I feel like I took years to uh, uh, of like rest to recover. Mm -hmm. And uh, one year, like in the summertime, we would take our sheep to our, we call it sheep camp, which was, another place that we had that was really like beautiful. They had uh pine rosa uh, pines, so like these really tall trees. Mm -hmm. And that was one of our places that was passed down to us from our grandparents. And I would be up there with, uh, there's no phone at the time. No, still to this day, you probably could get little reception. But I would be up there with uh, 
big flock of sheep. Like people say they have sheep nowadays, which is probably like 40, but we had lots of sheep and we, I would go up there with a, a horse and a rifle, my whip. I'd be out there all on my own. And every afternoon, there would just be these real big uh, popcorn clouds, real fluffy. And I would always wait for it to come because in the morning, it would be just clear skies, blue skies, sun shining, and it'd be really hot. And then when those clouds would come in in the afternoon, it would just be like 10 degrees cooler and the breeze, you would actually feel the breeze. And it was just so great. And one of these times when the clouds were coming in, uh, lightning was around and the sheep were getting scared. And I was like, I can't control them. Like they want to do what I wanted them to do, get them to a safe place away from, uh, like from scattering because there's other bigger animals out there that will eat them. And, uh, it just started pouring rain and I had my dad's brand new a saddle out on the horse and I didn't want to get it wet. I was like, I didn't want to ruin it for him. So like I was trying to get the sheep going and uh, I was chasing these sheep and they were just so frightened that they were hardly even moving and the horse was even scared too. And up there, when you hear the thunder, it echoes and the horse was just like not having it. And I was like, all right. So I just got unmounted off the horse, got the saddle and took it off and started to carry it. And, uh, uh, let the horse tied him up. And right when I was getting ready to, uh, get all the sheep into the corral, uh, I hear this, or I don't even hear anything. I just see this uh, light flash and I can't see nothing. And uh, I feel things coming down on my hat and on my clothes. And I don't know what it is. It feels like hell. And it's, it's actually uh, pine needles from a tree near me. And there was four sheep there that uh that were dead that were in the same area that I was and I saw like smoke from the tree from the top of it and a ring that goes around the trunk of the tree and to me it was like I am a kid but I'm responsible for my life and what I want to do in this world. And whatever silly thing that I'm good at, I'm going to pursue it and not look back. I believe I could be super fast and I don't want to waste those gifts. And that was kind of my moment of I'm going to do this running thing uh, because in their beginning it was really easy to be like i quit running like i don't need to run competitively uh i don't need to do any of that but when that happened to me that event it, it changed me in the sense that there's a lot of people that had different gifts and 
uh, they don't use it. And I want to make sure I use my gifts because I think if we all use our gifts, we could do something really special, not for ourselves, but for our family. And our, if we're really good, we could do something for our community, wherever we live. I love that. I think that's some incredible perspective. It actually reminds me a little bit of an oft-quoted line from Steve Prefontaine where he says, don't sacrifice the gift. And I think that's the same message that comes across in the story that you just told. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Steve Prefontaine, I mean, people like growing up, I would, I would have this organ hat and people are like, oh, Steve Prefontaine. I would have no clue what it is. I just like green and that yellow. I didn't even know it was like organ or anything like that. And then I started reading about him because people would bring it up to me and says, oh, you're a runner and you don't know Steve Prefontaine. But then like, I would see old clips of him like in the black and white. And I love black and white films. That's what I like today to watch like my free time. And so when I found things like that on Prefontaine, it wasn't even like uh, running. I believe that uh, when someone does something to their ultimate best they can, it just becomes art. And it's like you get in so mesmerized that like it's beautiful to you. It's like, man, you have to stop and look. And that's one of the things I struggle with too with running is that people would stare at me when I'm running and I would be like, why are they staring at me? I was so insecure. But I realized when you do something uh, so well that it just looks beautiful, whatever it is. What's your relationship with running like right now? And I want to layer that on top of what you just said about having this gift and pursuing it as far as you can and how that fits into the current equation yeah um running right now is like i feel really in a good place um it's hard to get there in life like find a place like oh man i feel good today because sometimes you could be like working uh you could be working your your knuckles bled and everything like that and feel like there's no progress and see no progress and maybe the abyss of your effort is a bottomless pit and for a couple of years I, w- I felt like that like it was a bottomless pit all my effort was going nowhere but now that I got out of it I see that you know that's what I needed to do to survive and be able to keep this running dream alive. I mean, I have untapped potential, like say like I'm 26 again. I really feel that because I did a pit a lot of mile in my legs and I, I treat myself really well. I mean, uh, everything that I grew up on, my ancestors grew up on, like traditional me and things like that, living off the land, being self-sufficient, uh, not needing to go to the grocery store every day or week, matter of fact, uh, that I could be 
able to go to corral, get the meat from a sheep, and get the vitamin D and the iron that I need because I know how I prepare the food like my ancestors did. And that uh, that's one of the things that I think about a lot. You mentioned how you were in a bottomless pit for a few years. How long ago was that? And what led you into it? Uh, I don't think it was preventable. Uh, you see, uh, I had a few coaches in my career. Uh, my first one was, I would say, my my siblings, because like from my sisters, they were very, they had empathy. Then like my brother would teach me how to take care of myself. Like if I, uh, to like kind of always watch over myself. Then, uh, then my, my first like structured coach is Terry Thompson, which was in high school. Then my college coach, Greg Wenneborg. Then uh, Michael Aish. And then from there, um, a little bit of Tim Bro, And all those people I learn a great deal from. And I try to surround myself with good people. Uh, like I, when I first went to Pima, like I didn't want no favors. Uh, I just asked for a chance to show up and go to a practice. I ran with these athletes that were college athletes and I was soon to be a college athlete. And I just went through the the workout so easily and everyone was like breathing hard. And then afterward, like, Craig Wenneborg talked to me. He's like, oh, wow. He says, like, he, I could see in his eyes that I wasn't just a state champion of the, like, the state that I was, I had way more than anybody could see if they didn't see me, like, actually work out or run. So he offered me a scholarship. So I ran in college and from 2006, to about 2015 or maybe 14 is when I got to know Greg Winneborg for like really well. And our interaction was uh, a lot like Rennie. Like it wasn't always the best and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't bad. It was always. Had its ups and downs. Yeah. Had its ups and downs. And like we, 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 uh, communicate with each other and it would always solve the problem and gradually as like later in the years uh we still had that connection and the bond like you know uh think of your favorite coach or your favorite person how you would do anything for them mm -hmm. that's how i feel with all my coaches and i think i was pitted like for me, I look back, I was like, I was pinned in a position and I don't think it was right. 
I should have had nothing to do with any of it. But I was in that position and I wanted an apology from it. And I, I didn't get it. And at the time, like, I was so mad at myself. I was suffering and in pain for so long that I hated myself for it because, like, how could I be so stupid, like, to trust somebody that doesn't care about me? And if I could interrupt right here, the position that you described, is that it to be, you know, in a, in a place where you trusted someone who didn't care about you? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. To, to be in a place where someone you thought, uh, cares about your well-being and, uh, all of a sudden doesn't rather, rather not, uh, like, does it, does it care anymore? Like, even if you tell them, like, uh, tell them that what you're feeling and whatnot, it, it, it was just, uh, one of those things that, uh, I let go on for so long that I didn't, like, I hated myself for letting it go on for that long. But I, I felt like, uh, he was going through a hard time and, uh, like, man, when you love a coach or you love someone, like you would feel their pain and you would be like, you know what? They can, like at, at that time, I felt like I can take it. Like they want to treat me terrible. If it makes them feel better, let them. Because at the end of the day, this is a guy that I chose to reach the top with. And then to the point where like, we were okay, like separating. I felt like he quit on me, and for for the longest time, like that hurt me, and I didn't want to let go of it. I was like, I wanted to devour that feeling. I was like, I just wanted to wanted it to burn me up, and it sure did. And uh. So that weight you carried on your shoulders just pushed you further and further into that pit. Yes, that's that's exactly what happened. And when I realized that there was no end to it, uh, that I needed to heal, uh, like my running was already sour. Like everything I accomplished in college felt like it was spoiled. And I was like, man, I just really need to heal. So... I felt like the the mountains are calling me in terms of like, all right, this would be a place to heal. And if you heal enough, you'll be able to get back on the roads and really get down to what I want to do, which is a 208 marathon, which I thought was possible when I ran that 215. And was it about this time when you were feeling the call of the mountains that you jumped into that 50K? Yeah, I think, uh, well, a lot of it had to do with, uh, before I got the contract with Mizuno in 2012, like there's this uh, organization called NNER. Uh, they were looking for an elite runners 
to sponsor. And at the time, I I felt like uh, I didn't really feel like I like I wanted like I didn't want to ask for anything. I didn't want no handouts. So I wanted to prove myself and get a Mizuno. And I got that Mizuno contract. And then I was like, okay, now I can work with you because I believe in what you're doing for uh, the community and where I grew up. So they would, so that organization would take uh, high school runners and they would take them to a camp at Flagstaff called McMillan Running Camp. And so I would be their chaperone while they were there, but really they didn't need to be a chap. They didn't really need a chaperone because runners are so like uh, uh, responsible. Mm-hmm. And then he had all these college coaches and elite or professional runners that were there. So they go through like a week of like a daily life of a runner. And then at the end of the camp, they would get new shoes. And, you know, like, uh, man, I thought that was the greatest thing. So, like, this guy that donates to that organization pits on this race to help fund these kids. And I see these kids. Some of them look like like me, like uh, they would never get an opportunity to run. Like they were always too busy or something, but somehow they made it there. So uh, I always like uh, deferred that 50K run until that year that I was having trouble. And I was like, you know what? I got nothing to lose. And that was the first time that I was really like in charge of what races I would go to. And I went out there and I just wanted to be around good people. And the race director, Ken Gordon, he gets these runners that he knows or maybe weren't runners and he invites them out for a run and they, they become hooked. And sometimes they've gone through a lot of turmoil, maybe in their own life. And those were the kind of people that were out there. And so like, for me, like being around people like that was, it was healing. You found your crowd. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, it was home because my parents never really get to watch me race. And so like, they get excited that they get to see me and in high school, that's all I wanted, but they were, they were busy working and whatnot. Let's dig into that a little bit. I know from reading stories about you that when you first got into running in high school, your parents initially weren't supportive of it. Uh, And you've obviously had quite a bit of success in high school and college and beyond since then. How do they feel about running and your relationship to it and the place that it holds in your life now? Well, uh, to dig deeper into that, um, I look back at it now and I realize that man, there's a lot of things that needs to be done uh, on the ranch. <clears throat> I remember one of the years that I, I, I got a motorcycle for my birthday and I wasn't excited about it. Like I was just like, I gave like the keys to my sister or my brother. I'd be like, here, you can drive it. 
I was like, like happy, like for me, like I was happy, like running around on my own feet. Like I would have a, like I grew up with guns and whatnot and safety first. So like, I love to be on my own and things like that. I had my own compound bow and I just loved that. And I was like a bike, like who needs a bike? Like I've run there. <laughs> and, uh, and so like one of these years, like, uh, I was riding my bike and it was raining and I was like, I got to get out of the rain. I'm going to get in trouble for getting my clothes wet. And I was driving really fast and there was this turn and I missed a turn and my bike slid on my, my leg, my foot, my ankle. And at that time there's no cell phone. And I look back on it. That bike was probably 200 pounds, maybe more. And in high school, I thought I was like normal sized kid, but I was like a hundred pounds, really 101. And like, I, I barely got my leg out and this bike was turned on its side and, uh, it was just raining on me. And I was like, man, I can't even get home. I'm like so far away in the middle of nowhere. No one knows where I am. People even know that I went out and I finally like got below the the bike with like a uh, uh, mangled leg, a mangled ankle, and I lifted up. And I can't believe that. I think I tried it like three times. I can't remember. It was like I was just like shaking, like shaking from the cold and shaking from trying to lift the bike. And I got it up, and I started and drove home and I was like uh try to be not like paying any attention on me so like without trying to limp or anything I limped to uh my parents room because like I don't know we didn't have like I didn't have my own room growing up and I would just like I just took off my wet clothes and crawled under the blanket and went to sleep because the pain was so bad like uh I found out that my ankle was uh, uh, sprang, but it would have been easier if it was broken. They told me by the doctors. I don't know what that means, but uh, I still had responsibility. Like I remember having a cast, and I would drive this dually, this turbo dually that was stick shift with a cast on my right foot, and so like I would shift with my left leg, and I would use the crutches to step on the pedal then shift with my other hand so like to pick up a helper to help us with the sheep when we're off at school or at work and whatnot so like for instance like my parents have a regular job and then like there has to be someone to look over the flock of sheep meaning to take them out so they can feed throughout throughout the day so we needed to get a helper. So a helper is like a sheep herder, uh, mm -hmm. a shepherd. And so like, there's no one around. So like, I, I was like, I had a vehicle and I was like, I had to make, had to get this done because everyone else is busy. So it's always one of those things that like, man, we were so busy. Like if you look at today and ask people on the Nafa reservation, if they have sheep or whatnot, they probably don't have a lot or, maybe uh 
they lose them all because it's so hard uh just with modern day life like there's so many things like you can't support a family with just one person anymore with just one job maybe you have to have multiple jobs so those things are really complex and i don't want to be political uh but it's just one of those realities that uh maybe when my parents were younger one person one parent could support the whole family but they kind of change over the years because we believe like of course like equal rights and whatnot that's important but there's like i don't know if there's even a solution to that kind of thing but that was just the reality is that everyone had to do as much as they can and i was one of those kids that and my siblings were the same way that we had this huge responsibility i mean it wasn't that they didn't care about supporting me and running it was just that man responsibility like i remember like sometimes when i see people like now my age would say like i'm a grown-up i got my own house i'm an adult i was like that just sounds immature to me because like i know a lot of kids on the reservation that have like doing adult jobs like for me like i would have my own work in the summertime like planning sharing sheet with like a hand share then having to share my grandpa's sheet and then also like if i wanted to have some money like i would work like this was in elementary put up a fence for one of my teachers like a wooden fence with cement and whatnot and uh like all those things i i did like uh i'm not afraid to work and i think that's that's the foundation that I'm talking about that allows me to be a good runner is that I, I had this fortitude and uh, just that functional work of being under 100 pounds and having to lift things that are constantly over 120 pounds, like a bale of hay or a sheep or a ram or a horse, uh, things like that. Like uh, it just made me really strong so that when I ran, uh, I was pretty solid and stable. Let's dig into that a little bit further. What other advantages do you think your upbringing on the ranch gave you when it came to competitive running? Oh, everything. I mean, I think the one disadvantage for me is that when I would go to these big cities, I just feel so like... Like for me, like one of the things for me is like my biggest, my heart has to be into it. Like I, I wear my heart on my sleeve. So that's connected with your psychological thing. So like when I would go to these big cities, I wouldn't feel like I belong. And it's foreign land to you. Yeah. It's just it's like, I rather be like, the sky and the ground is the ground. Like the sky and the sky and the ground is like home to me. But like when you have a cement under your feet, then the sky, you look at these big buildings. It's like, it's so foreign to me. Like I grew up without like electricity. So like being in the dark was so natural for me. Like I, like people are scared of the dark and I'm like, I couldn't really like, man, the dark is the best time to look at the stars and see like how beautiful it is like you could just stare in the sky 
And like, I didn't understand that. And when I went to the city, it was loud. And like, to me, that was like more scary because like, I, I know that there's animals that are wild and whatnot. And I know that, uh, like, I know what they would want to do if they want food and things like that. But for people, like, people are more, uh, uh, can hide a lot of things. And it's hard to trust people. People can, you don't want to be in the wrong place in the wrong time. So, like, being around a lot of people, being around just something that I wasn't used to. Did it take you a long time to learn how to trust other people? Uh, it did. It does. I mean, I'm still working on it. Like, it takes courage to trust people. And that's part of being an adult is that uh, even when you get burned bad, it's like being brave enough to trust people again. And I feel like I'm finally healed that I could trust someone again. And like right now, I'm looking for a coach. And like time's not on my side. And it's never like I always knew that running has a shelf life. But, you know, I, I still have that hope that there's someone out there that can help me, you know, because I believe when you get really uh when you're really going to chase after like a fast time, like a two eight marathon or try to do really well on the trails, like for me, uh, things can get fuzzy because like, uh, you're not really thinking clearly. You're thinking about all you're trying to do is trying to run faster than anybody, you know, and sometimes like, uh, things that are not uh, rational, you would think is rational. So it's good to have someone there that can be like, hey, think about it this way. How are you personally thinking about whatever remaining running goals you have left as a competitive athlete at this point of your life? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm 32 and I feel like all the great runners are going to be when they're in their 40s. Uh, I know it goes uh, against maybe what people might think, say like 26 being your peak, but I believe mm-hmm. that uh, being 40 is the best time. I mean, a lot of you don't see a lot of people doing it because like, like running, it's not... They say it's professional, like you get paid for it, but really like you're... You got to have something else going along with it financially. And also if you have a family, like you're pinning them through a lot of hardship if you don't do well. And that's, that's, uh, changes things the way, uh, say how someone would feel when they're 21, when they're single. And for me, like I look at it as I, I put a pause on that life and, that's part of my, what I'm risking, but you know, I believe it's going to pay off for me. Uh, I believe that I have all the tools and, uh, with or without a coach, I feel like I can get pretty close, but I would prefer coach because, uh, 
it's a it's a lonely journey uh and having someone there to celebrate with and feel what you feel in a race uh is important to me what is your situation outside of running look like right now? Are you still spending a lot of time on your family's ranch and doing work there? I'd love to understand what else you've got going on at the moment. Yeah, for for me right now, like uh, uh, I I felt like the city life was getting more busier than when I first came to Tucson. Like it seems like cars are nonstop on the highway and more people are not paying attention to the road. So I felt like it just wasn't a good environment for running for me, even though we have these beautiful mountains that you could drive to. I was the kind of type of person that would rather just run out of my front door rather than drive somewhere than run. And, uh, so I made a decision to, uh, go back home and especially with the, uh, pandemic going on, uh, I want to be close to my parents where if they need anything, I can get it for them. And, uh, like there's still a lot of things that need to get done on the ranch and helpers are hard to come by. And so with me there, I, I, I can make sure that everything gets done. And like from a young age, like my dad did silversmithing. So like jewelry, like these big concert belts, I don't know if you've seen them in like old, uh, Western films. Mm -hmm. So, so my dad would make things like that growing up too, along with his regular job. And, um, uh, so like I, I got exposed to that like at a young age and uh, learned that, uh, learned how to work with horses. So in a place that's real rural, uh, there's always someone that needs a horse trained or needs them to look at their hooves or just maybe needs a wild horse that they don't, they just want to give as a gift that's trained. So I've been able to do that kind of thing and uh, also learn other things from my dad that he wasn't able to do when he was working. So like working on uh, plumbing and things like that. So for me, like I, I don't see a problem in getting a job and I don't work. I don't worry about working every day of my life because I feel what I did growing up, what I did growing up was way harder than any job in the world. Uh, so for me, like, it seems like a calculated risk. And, you know, when, when I raise my family, like when I have a wife and kids, like I want them to be able to speak Navajo and things like that. So I'm learning that right now so i don't feel like uh any time is getting waste it feels like i'm just 
having more security for my future because I see things like in the news that maybe people are fighting over toilet paper, fighting over food and things like that. And it's like, man, people talk really like see how tough they are and they're fighting over toilet paper. It's like, man, other like the people that are really tough look as as weak because like, man, can't you go learn how to fish or get plants and things like that to eat off or raise your own food and things like that? So like for me, I feel like I have security in my future. I mean, uh, so so I, I, I have that going and I'm not worried. I think that's some really incredible perspective and I thank you for sharing it with me and, and in turn my listeners here because I, you know, I, think you, I think you're right. Um, and I think it's important for people to hear a perspective like yours, which is very different from the way that I grew up and I was brought up and I think is very different from the way a lot of the people who are listening to this were brought up and it really just helps to put things in perspective during what is undoubtedly a, a very difficult time, but I think it can help the rest of us have gratitude or a renewed sense of gratitude for what it is that, that we do have and that we are able to do. Yes. And that's a perfect point too. Like, uh, like one of the things that I hated, like just like, uh, about two years ago when I was saying like I was in that deep abyss mm-hmm. was that what I hated was that I was emotionally hurt and when you can't see something like that, it just feels like something weak. It's not like a broken leg. No one's going to say, run it off. Like uh, if it's mentally or emotionally, like no one sees it. And to me, it felt so weak. So like, you know, whatever might seem uh, like the perspective of like, what is hard for me might be something easy for someone out so don't ever feel embarrassed about how you're brought up and whatnot because like uh uh, there's nothing wrong with it i mean it's just that it's just a perspective like maybe if you're fighting over a toilet paper maybe you shouldn't or if you're fighting and like if you're in line just let someone else go like have the brave or the courage to say like you know, I'm going to be okay. I'll, I'll figure out a way if they just cut off, like if they stop taking people in after this line gets filled or whatnot. Just kind of be like, be calm and think through things. Don't uh, fight because I know that I come from a harsh environment and believe me, we don't want to get there because people will fight over the littlest things and people got so much to live for and uh, try to remember that you got so much to live for and you got so much of a gift, whatever it is, even if you haven't find it, found it in your life, like try different things, you'll find it and pursue it and really go after it. I love that. And I think one of the big takeaways there is just to have empathy for other people because you never know where someone's coming from or what it is that they've they've gone through but if we can listen to them and and their stories and have empathy for one another that's how we'll help each other get through yeah and you know like i said when i first got into running 
my teammates in high school that were younger than me. Like here's this guy that comes in out of nowhere, it's faster than them, but still they teach me all these things and they're kind to me and and they do things for me like they gave me like one of their pairs of like racing flats that I never had. So like man, there's good people out there and we are all good and let's let's remember that. Like let's uh let's try to focus on that rather than maybe not getting something. A couple more things I want to talk to you about before we wrap up this conversation. And one of them is about misconceptions about Native people in general and maybe the Navajo specifically. In your experience, what are some of those misconceptions or things that most people just wouldn't understand about who you are, where you grew up, and what you're about? Uh, okay, one is uh, not all Native Americans have chiefs. Uh, it might be if they have a chief, like especially for Navajo leaders, it'd be written in books. They got it wrong. Uh, they think that just because someone's a leader, there's a, there's a chief. But the Navajos didn't have chiefs. The way they got the name chief was maybe because like it goes back to like the sheep. So the Chiro sheep, they use the wool. They weave these uh, blankets and rugs that are the best in the world. They're renowned for it. So like it could haul water. Uh, the designs on it's very geometric. Like a lot of it goes into it and it takes a really long time to weave those things. So when Native Americans would trade, say with the Plains Indian, usually the top guy was a chief, like say uh, in the Plains, whatever tribes are out there, they would trade with them. And usually the the leader would be wearing that, that blanket. It's because they would trade different things. And also too is like, um, so, it's not really nice thing to say, hey, chief, and things like that. It's not uh, appropriate. And uh, if we're all going to be respectful of one another and live in this world together, we need to know those boundaries. Uh, also, too, is uh, uh, I think with just my own people, like nothing uh, helps when people say like, oh, I'm a full-blooded Indian or full-blooded Navajo. Like, you know, when someone says that, it's uh, excluding people. Like say maybe someone that grew up off the reservation that maybe is Navajo. Does that make them not Navajo? And like my answer is no, they're Navajo. Like, and you know, you shouldn't judge people like that. And also, too, in our our uh, viewpoint on, like, when they say you're, say, like, Irish, Spaniard, Navajo, just say that, for example. If you're that, it's not a percentage. It's not like, oh, I'm 1% mm-hmm. Irish or then 50% Spaniard. It's like, that's not a perspective for us. It's like, it's all of it that's in us. We're not one thing. 
I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. And I, I thank you for sharing it. And I think it's important for more people to understand that perspective and some of those microaggressions that you talked about and words that we use without really thinking twice about the impact that they have. And, and these conversations aren't comfortable, but they're very important so that we can all grow. And as you just talked about, grow together. My last question for you has to do with being a role model for other young Navajo or or Native Americans, what you've done in the sport is is pretty special. Um, You've gotten to travel, race in in different states, um, you know, really just represent, you know, your, you know, your people and, and your heritage. And I'm curious how much you think about that as, you know, as, as a, as a runner, as your relationship with the sport has evolved and as you carry on with it? Um, it's, it's, uh, pretty significant to me because, uh, in running, uh, one of the things that you get, or like one of the people that you get compared to a lot, if you're coming from a reservation is Billy Mills Mm -hmm. and Billy Mills uh, you probably couldn't find anything about him talking bad about anyone. He's always about educating people. And even now, post his running career, he raises uh, money to send kids to college and pay for tu- tuition. And he's helping communities that maybe need food and things like that. And for me, uh, that role model, is, being a role model is important. I, uh, I traveled to other reservations in Minneapolis and Wisconsin, and I got to see the similarities and the diversity. And like one of my favorite memories is going to this, uh, to talk to these uh, group of kids. And like, for me, like, I'm like short, like I'm five, six. And these kids are like, uh, elementary and high school and they're like so tall they could like dunk the ball if they wanted to on the basketball court and so they were all wanting to play basketball and like I want and I was there to give a talk so like the kids had so much energy and like to to kind of like burn off the energy they said hey let's go put a race on and those kids were like here I hear you're the best and I was like uh, I'm okay. Like I'm fast enough. And he says, I want to beat you so I can be the best. And it was really cool because some, 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 some kids, they don't have that tenacity and those kids had it. Like they had to fight for what was theirs. And so like, for me, like I'm this guy that they hear, heard about. So I, I had my uh, pair of running clothes and my running flats in the car. So I was like, all right, let's go race. So we all got this group and I let all the kids in front of me. And I was like, we all drew a line in the dirt and we had one person say, go. And we all race. Oh my goodness. These kids took off. I was like, I was like, I was in (laughs) training. I was like pretty fit. 
and these kids are like leaving me in the dust. And I was like, man, I, I gotta, for me, like in my life, like I know that I'm a role model. So I want to have little, uh, steps, stepping stones where they can reach. So, so they can say like, I don't want them just to beat me because I let him. I want them to be able to reach for something. So when they get it, they actually feel that accomplishment. So they were running so far, I thought they were going to beat me. And then, like, I just got the second win. Like, like, I just feel like when I feel really good, you know, that feeling when you feel like that calmness and got that clarity and your body just moves the way it wants to. I got it halfway and I snapped into it like I woke up from a dream and I I beat the kids and then the kids were all like, man, let's, let's do it again. And they're like really happy and they're really intrigued by me after that. They're like, wanting to ask me questions like, how do you train and things like that. And they wanted to know about my story. Then we go into the, the gym where I was giving my talk and we're like, oh, let's go uh, shoot around. And I shot like, 10 threes like without missing and it thought i was just like this incredible person and i was like i was like man it's been a while since i shot a basketball and made it but they're all like in awe and you know it gave me uh it gave me something i could give to them which billy mills gives to me is that a stepping stone so billy mills set the stepping stone of becoming an olympian and a gold medalist you know, I don't know if I'll ever get there, but that's one of the things that I'm striving for. And I hope the kids that I uh, was around could go after my times and beat it and uh, continue to push the sport forward and uh, let people know that uh, Native Americans are uh, are alive and well and we're not hiding anywhere. I love it. I can't think of a better place to wrap up this conversation. It's been fascinating and exciting for me to get to talk to you like this in this kind of depth. I am so grateful for you taking the time to come on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thanks. Thanks for uh, allowing me to inform people about it and allowing me on your platform to share my stories and what I've learned throughout the years with running. And I really look up to you and what you're doing with the sport because uh, you're doing your own thing. And I think that's really cool. And you're not, uh, you're not focused on monetizing something. You're just more focused on, uh, getting running out to more people where they can enjoy it. All right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to Tracksmith and Gooder for sponsoring this week's episode. Tracksmith's No Days Off collection features cold weather gear designed to make that commitment to winter running a bit easier with warm layers, windproof tights, and accessories to get you out the door. Tracksmith is offering new customers $15 off your first purchase of $75 or more when you use the code MARIO15, that's MARIO15, when you check out at tracksmith.com.
Gooder sunglasses are just the best performance shades on the planet. I've been wearing them for the past few years. They don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. They come in a nice range of styles and fun colors like a ginger soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. And did I mention that they are super affordable at only 25 to 35 bucks a piece? So if you want to support the podcast and treat yourself to a pair of Gooders, head over to Gooder.com slash Mario or enter the code Mario at checkout and save 13% off your order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O and you'll save 13% on your order. Look good, run Gooder. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. Couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you will love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. 